Hi, my name is Hassan Morali. I use he, him pronouns. I got into uh, sexualized violence prevention advocacy when I was a student at Capilano University. And when I was uh, a board member on the Capilano Students' Union, I started teaching consent education workshops based on the anti-violence projects, let's get consensual campaign. And that's led me into uh, this kind of advocacy. And that's why I'm here today. Thank you so much, Hassan, for being a guest here on Survivor Talks. So today, Hassan and I are going to be speaking about consent education. And like he's mentioned, he has been involved in anti-sexual violence work and consent education and providing knowledge and education to people in the community. So thank you, Hassan, for being here today. And we'll get started. So based on your experiences, uh, what is do you want to dive more into your background with consent education? Like, how did it get started? What were your passion towards it? What made you want to do work in consent education? Sure. Well, first, thanks for, for having me on the podcast. Um, so I was a student at Capilano University, and in 2017, there was an opportunity for... I was So I was a uh, member of the Capilano Students' Union Board of Directors because I was uh, an elected students on the uh, CAPI Board of Governors. And so that's how I got involved with the Capilano Students' Union. And uh, in December 2017, the Capilano Students' Union uh, partnered up with the university to start doing consent education programming as part of their efforts to combat sexualized violence on campus. So I, I signed up for that opportunity for a few reasons. The first was um, I wanted to show that this this isn't just a, a women's issue and it's not just uh, a survivor's issue. I'm you know I identify as a man and I am I'm lucky that I've I haven't uh, you know experienced sexualized violence and I wanted to show other guys like me that this they could do this work. Um, and, you know, obviously, I mean, probably the one of the main reasons that I signed up is because I, I care about, I care about people, I am into a lot of social justice things. Um, I'm into, you know, I've done a lot of like work in sustainability and civic engagement. Um, but the other, the other factor that led me to sign up for the, the opportunity to start teaching consent education workshops was that um, I knew someone that had been uh, sexually assaulted and I, it made, I'd al always known that sexual violence was real. And I think um, it just struck close to home. And yeah. Yeah, I know there are a lot of people who get into this kind of work typically when um, they know they know someone personally who has been sexually violated. And I'm glad that there's workshops going on um, at the university. And personally, like, how would you describe consent? And why do you think consent is so important, whether it's sexual or not? Because, um, you know, consent is not typically always related to sex. It can be as simple as asking someone if they want a hug or asking someone if it's okay to hold their hand or 
you know, just like personal boundaries and like making sure someone's in a safe space. So how did, would you describe consent and why do you think it's so important in today's world? I would describe consent as uh, basic respect for another person's boundaries, just, just off the top of my head. Um, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, you know, in the way you did, because it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Consent is not just a concept that uh, applies to se like sexual contexts. Consent is something that we can and do use in our everyday lives, uh, you know, multiple times a day. It's a basic, it's a, it's a core tenet of uh, respectful social relations. So, I mean, the, the way that I got on, that I came onto this podcast is a perfect example. You uh, reached out and asked me if I would like to do, if I would like to come on to the podcast and, and speak. You didn't just tell me, oh, you know, Hassan, you're coming onto the podcast and I really need you to do this. And, mm -hmm. oh, or, oh, you know, like, what do you mean you can't? No, you asked me if I'd like to, if I'd like to come onto the podcast. And then I, I said, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to ask a couple of questions first. That's actually a really good uh, example of consent and a good example of informed consent. And I think, I think we lose something when we talk about consent as this niche concept in sexualized violence um, prevention. I think um, talking about consent as a as a core tenet of interacting with each other in a respectful way is, I think that's something that we all need to do as a, that we need to do as a society, because um, let's, let's take the, let's take the other road. What's the, uh, what's the opposite of consent? That's forcing somebody to do something that's in, mm -hmm. you know, that's, yeah, that's forcing somebody to do something against their will right? Um, and where that comes from is the, is a lack of respect for somebody's boundaries. And that can stem from entitlement, it can stem from a, a lack of empathy, it can stem from uh, ignorance, it, there, there are a whole range of uh, underlying assumptions that, is, that hold up the culture of violence that we currently live in. And I know a lot of people, especially when I was teaching workshops and even myself, when I went and uh, re received my uh, training workshop, when I started doing consent education uh, programming, people think we live in a culture of violence. Some people are, some people are like, oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. And some people say, I mean, I don't know about that. I know violence exists and happens, but I don't think we live in a culture that glorifies violence. But once you under once you examine the underlying ideas that are embedded in our in in the media, in our political injustice systems, in <clears throat> um, you know family practices, 
et cetera, there are, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that uh, the culture that we have right now facilitates sexual violence because it does not sufficiently teach people that consent is a mandatory part of everyday life. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to tie back to two of the things. I guess like you said right now, how there are people in this world who don't believe that like violence exists. It's like pretty laughable and it just makes me question, makes all of us question who are advocating for these kind of things that, you know, when is it going to be time for them to wake up and realize that sexual violence, domestic violence, like any sort of violence in this world does exist. Um, and also with the whole consent thing, how you mentioned that, uh, you know, if it's not con if it's not consensual, it's obviously forcing someone to do something against their will. Um, and there are a lot of people who would argue that, you know, it kills the mood and you know it's killing the vibe. I know this one time I actually got in like a little argument on Twitter, of course. Um, everything happens on Twitter. And um, everything always everything always happens on Twitter. Yeah. And there was this debate, I guess I want to say that was going on um about how, you know inviting someone over to someone's house after like a party or going out at the club or just having a night out it's not consensual and there is like this dude who is like well it gives the vibe you know um why should we have to ask for consent when it's already like you know consent is kind of there it's you can pick up on the signs and stuff but it's like it's not um and he further argued that uh what's it called you know just asking for consent is just you know I mean, just it feels weird and it's like doesn't feel like it just kind of kills the mood, it kills the vibes, like what's the point of asking for it when, you know, you were on a date with someone, you guys were laughing, you were flirting, maybe you guys held hands and you come home and it's like, we'll have to ask consent again, like what, what's going on? So I want to hear your thoughts on that, like why do you think people, like, should stop assuming that consent is there? Um, it's so harmful to just assume that someone wants to have sex or someone, you know, just because you're inviting someone over to your place means that things are going to get sexual. Like, what are your thoughts on this? This is a great question. So, I mean, I've heard, I've heard this a lot. I think, I think everybody's heard it a lot. And I think this is mm -hmm. uh, a major sticking point for why people don't practice consent or don't practice it um, verbally. And um you know, I, I think there are people who would say that it, it kills the vibe. So like, let, let's unpack that. What does that mean, killing the vibe? Does that mean that you think that if you ask somebody f like, hey, can I kiss you? Or, hey, do you want to have sex? That that in and of itself would take would change their mind from before that thinking yes i do want to kiss this person or yes i do want to have sex with this person to oh that was that's weird like that they ask i don't feel like it anymore um i think that's the the assumption right and yeah you know i i've i've heard guys say that a lot and i've i've i mean i've had that thought myself but i think you know some counters that i've i've heard um especially from from women to that thought is no woman who wants to do something with you, whether it's like kissing or, or holding hands or, or, you know, having sex is going to not want to do that by you asking. Now, I've, I've, I mean, I've also heard, uh, you know, I've seen 
some people on online and like girls say differently but I've I feel like they're always younger girls and older girls especially like women who are you know above the age of like their early 20s appreciate being asked for consent so much more and I was thinking about that and I realized that that's probably because they've had their consent violated you know like I I was watching a TikTok from uh this woman who said that before she'd ever kissed anybody she thought it would uh somebody asking to kiss her would would ruin things or be awkward and kill the mood but now that now that she's older she she loves I mean she loves it there's she said there's nothing there's nothing sexier than that um I also remember when I was teaching consent education workshops having dinner with um a couple of people and one of one of them was a friend of mine who was teaching those workshops with me and uh another was this guy who was talking about a, a hookup he had recently and he said that the the girl s- stopped them fooling around to talk about to talk about it or to talk about consent and he said it was it it was weird and awkward and that's why he said that he didn't want to verbally ask someone like hey can like do you want to have sex because it was like you said um like you said other people have have expressed that it's it's either weird or or an awkward conversation to have so uh my response to that was i mean they they ended up having sex every everybody consented and i mean i pointed that out to him and i also said that you know like let's let's take a, a look at the let's weigh the cost benefits of this here so the you know the the potential like con or cost here is that you might ruin the vibe or something you don't end up getting to have sex not great but you know what the alternative the other alternative is could be sexual assault and that is way worse than not getting to have sex so i mean i think it's pretty clear what people should be doing you know it's like can it be an awkward conversation sure but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it right you shouldn't you shouldn't refrain from asking for consent because you think it might quote unquote kill the vibe right um just sorry just one last point the Go ahead. i think um i think a lot of guys are scared that having that conversation will k- kill the mood enough that they don't end up getting to have sex and that they're either savvy like that they're smart enough or savvy enough to kind of tell when any 
<clears throat> excuse me, when other nonverbal cues of consent may be present that they don't have to potentially engage, that they don't have to engage in a potentially awkward conversation that might lead to them not getting to have sex. And my response to that is, there are so many ways that miscommunication can happen that um, people might not feel comfortable asserting their boundaries until and unless they're asked and given space to and provided like an explicit opportunity to. And it is far better to go out of your way and really not go out of your way. Just say like, hey, this is, this is what I want to do. Do you want to do that? What are your, what are your boundaries? Is there anything that you want to tell me? Like, it's real, it's not that hard. And honestly, if the, if things are so precarious that one little question could ruin, could lead to you not having sex, then, you know, consent may not be there anyways. And you may have maybe saving yourself from violating someone's boundaries. And that's always something that you should, that all oh, that's always something worth pursuing is not violating someone's boundaries. Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of this just ties back to, you know, people not being comfortable to ask for, you know, consent is that lack of conversation that's happening in households, like it's not there, right? Um, especially like in brown families, I feel like, con you know, consent and how to have safe sex is not talked about enough because it's like a very like stigmatized and conversation It holds a lot of taboo to it. And even like in, in schools, whether it's elementary or high school, um, consent education is barely talked about. I know with me personally, I had like a sex ed class, not even a sex ed, it was called Planning 10. And that's where we learned about like, yep. yeah, we learned just, we didn't really learn about how to have sex ed. So it's like, go okay, ahead, that's how you put a condom on. And that was it. And it's like, okay, well, how, how, we, how are we going to learn about, you know, the red flags in relationships and how are we going to learn about consent and boundaries and safe spaces? Because these are things that are really important. Like, yeah, putting on a condom as someone is, but what's more important is how to respect one another and how to, you know, if you, someone says no, back off, someone says yes, continue, but don't force someone to say yes at the same time. And, you know, consent is so important, especially, you know, and it expands further than adults as well. And a lot of people would argue that children should not learn about sexual consent, but I feel like it's different. I feel like everyone from all ages and genders and sexuality and religious backgrounds should be learning about this. Um, but where do you stand on that? Like, do you feel like children should be able to learn about sexual consent? Absolutely. I think, and I, I, I mean, I understand that this is a contentious topic and, um, you know, I mean, just touching on your, uh, your point about your experience, um, in Planning 10, I think, I mean, I had the same thing, right? I graduated from high school a while ago in, in 2011, but we had, uh, I think Planning 9, Planning 10, and, um, something like something, I can't remember the name of the course, but something in grade 12 and these kinds of things were touched on, but they were definitely up to the discretion of 
the teacher and um sorry i don't know if they were up to up to the discretion of the teacher but i had i have a feeling that unfortunately like um other things that aren't mandated in uh grade school curricula it comes down to who you had as a teacher right like i remember sorry go ahead yeah, I was just saying um, how, like, for me, it wasn't great. I was just grade 10. That's when you learn about everything. That's it. And then I think social justice taught a little bit more about, like, sexual balance. And, you know, it talked more about, like, gender-based balance and stuff like that. But it wasn't, obviously, that class is mandatory. But you can continue on. I don't think, I don't, I'm not quite sure about how it leads down to the cur curriculum of the teacher. But you probably know more. I mean, I'm just thinking of... Um like there are so many uh there uh in education about indigenous peoples mm -hmm. uh in grade school is so uneven like i've met people even in my school like who went to school in my school district that had different experiences um learning about indigenous peoples and i bring that up because there are uh first of all there has been a huge lack of uh, education about the true history of Canada and Indigenous peoples in public schools, and um, that's why that's why I'm I'm relating it because there are teachers that have gone out of their way to include it in curricula, and teachers who haven't, right? And it I mean it shouldn't be down to the the discretion of of a teacher and just the luck of the draw who students get as their teacher um you know uh education about indigenous peoples and uh education about um consent sex education etc that stuff should be should be mandatory in my opinion so yeah and in, in response to your question i absolutely think that children should learn about cons uh sexual consent and, and consent in general from a young age. Uh, the beauty of consent is that it's it's not just applicable to sexual contexts, and it's not just important for sexual contexts either. Consent is something that everyone uses in their daily relationships as uh, a part of normal social relations. And we already do learn about consent from an early age in the education system. We just don't frame it as quote unquote consent. For example, as early as preschool and kindergarten, we learn not to take other people's toys, not to touch each other in, in ways that hurts the other person, like, you know, don't push anyone, don't grab anyone's ponytail, like that kind of thing. Um, we definitely already teach kids not to do things that violate the boundaries of others. We just don't say that it's part of consent education. Um, and as I said earlier, I think we lose something when we pigeonhole consent education into just sexualized violence prevention. Um, like I, I think kids should start learning about consent as a general concept in practice and using that term explicitly from preschool or, or kindergarten. And obviously it should be made, made age appropriate. You know, the examples that I just mentioned, don't, you know, don't push anybody down or hit anybody. Don't take people's toys, like that kind of stuff. And then some sometime in grade school, sexual topics can be introduced 
And I know there's a lot of debate about what exact age is appropriate for kids to start learning about uh, consent and, and sex education in general. Um, there are some who say that these topics shouldn't be taught to kids as young as like six, seven, eight years old because they're too adult for children that young. Um, but I think those people are engaging in, in wishful thinking because first of all, kids are exposed to sex in the media they consume, the things they hear from their friends and family, um, whether it's intended for them or not. And it's not something that we as a society like to talk about or acknowledge because it's terrible and awful to think about, but there are many kids out there who experience sexual abuse at that age. So I understand the concerns of people who are hesitant to expose kids to sex education at such a young age, but I think some preliminary sex education at that age um, can be a good thing if it's centered around bodily autonomy and respect. Educating people about their rights and the rights of others shouldn't have an age limit or an age barrier. If you teach a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old that sex is something that happens between people who are older and that everybody has boundaries that must be respected no matter what, like what's the downside to that? What's the downside to teaching a kid that? Do people think that by teaching what I just said to a kid that the kid is somehow going to be corrupted? Like, I think the exact opposite. I think we need to teach kids from a young age that nobody is entitled to anybody else's body. Yes, 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 you are absolutely correct. Um, I feel like, you know, the same thing. I feel like we should have age appropriate consent for all ages. Uh, people would think that, you know, taking children at the age of six is way too young, but it's like, there's a way to do it. And there's a way to go about it and obviously at a certain age like I would say maybe like grade six grade seven because that's when you learn about puberty as well in elementary mm -hmm. school right so it's like if you, we can learn about that we can obviously learn about sexual consent because by the time people are hitting the age 13 14 15 they're you know they're going to be in relationships they're going to be wanting to experiment with their bodies um you know and they're going to be there's going to be a lot of confusion about whether or not you know what to do with our bodies and how to say yes and how to say no so i feel like by the time six seven hits grade six and seven hits we should be able to have like that conversation with children what consent is about and what is rape and sexual violence um and start teaching children at that age and i feel like yeah there may be a lot of parents who may not agree with that but it's best for everyone because we don't want people to start growing up regardless of their gender that you know they're, they're going to turn into uh, monsters and they're going to turn into people who are not respecting people's boundaries and people's spaces and um you know even at a young age there are a lot of children who experience sexual violence in their own households regardless of i feel like personally it's like family abuse um and they might grow up and start to experience a lot of like traumatic things that happened to them as a kid and just to expand on that, I feel like movies and documentaries, maybe not so much documentaries, but there's a lot of shows, um, music that plays a role in like consent and like violence against women specifically. I know like Disney movies, like Snow White faced a lot of backlash because when she was like poisoned mm -hmm. by an apple, right? There was like a prince who had to kiss her. So there's like that message that Disney's sending out to younger children that there needs to be like a prince charming in their life. And regardless of what happens, a man needs to kiss a girl. So I'm like fully against that. And I also just feel like there's a lot of like privilege and power that may come and consent, you know, if what um, there may be a lot of times where someone may be coerced to say uh, yes, just because um, I wanna take a man and woman in this scenario and just say that mm -hmm. you know, maybe like a really privileged man um, in the community, you know, they come from wealth, 
from money from privilege. They're good. They have a good name. Uh, their family is well known, and there may be some reasons people may have to consent against their will, especially when they're in danger. And you know, how is how do you navigate consent in that place? How do you navigate being coerced? How do you say no? What do you do when you put in like a dangerous situation like this? Because when a woman does come forward, like we've seen so many times in Hollywood, like Harvey Weinstein, for example, and R. Kelly, um, a lot of women are not believed. And I don't know, like, how would you like navigate this? Well, I think, um, I mean, privilege and power play such a, a huge role here that, again, we we don't like to we haven't historically liked to talk about this in society because these are these are uncomfortable, complex subjects, right? Um, you know, when for, for my for my point of view, um, if somebody is uh, putting some sort of force on you to consent to an activity, there there is no consent there. Like I don't care if somebody says. Um, if somebody says yes, but they have been pressured, that's yeah. you. There isn't. Uh, that's not them acting out of their own bodily autonomy. That's them acting to preserve their bodily autonomy by giving in to uh, a situation that they have not, in which they've been. Uh, in which their agency has been limited or taken away, right? So um, let's take Harvey Weinstein uh, as a, a great example. Harvey Weinstein uh, abused the power that he had, economic power, uh, social power, cultural power into uh, coercing women into having sex so that, uh, you know, they could, still so that they still might have a, a shot in Hollywood and I'm I'm not up to date on the the exact details of the case so I mean he he could also ha I I think he might have also physically um you know overpowered someone but from I do know for sure that he uh you know would go after girls and these these women didn't feel comfortable saying no in that situation because of the power dynamics at play. Harvey Weinstein was a huge Hollywood power player. He could make or break careers. He's uh, won so many Oscars for uh, the films that he's worked on. He could give you he could give you a big break in Hollywood, like getting into a Harvey Weinstein movie could launch a career. So how does somebody who's trying, who doesn't have power, who, who's maybe like an, like an up and coming actor actually say no in, say no, I, I don't wanna have sex with you without risking their, their physical safety or their, um, their socioeconomic status. Like if Harvey Weinstein wanted to, and I, I think he may have, like he could he could have blacklisted 
anyone that he wanted. He could have said, oh, this person was, you know, difficult to work with, or this person, uh, you know, this person's not talented at all, never work with them, or this person uh, was rude to me or something like that. And that, you know, all of these, whether or not he did that, it's the fact that he could have, that that's that's a power dynamic, right? When there's such a disparity between uh, the power of two parties that one party doesn't have as much doesn't doesn't have uh, as much agency or power in asserting their rights. So, I think for uh, you know going back to our earlier conversation about um, you know some people not wanting to quote unquote kill the vibe by bringing up explicitly bringing up uh, consent verbally before they have sex. I think it's. I think people who have had their boundaries violated appreciate and recognize the importance of uh, those opportunities to provide or deny consent so much more. Um, and this kind of privilege goes into a lot of other different types of oppression. If you've never faced racist comments at school, then you might say, well, do we really need an equity, diversity, and inclusion initiative, you know? So, so somebody says, <clears throat> uh, you know, a racist thing to you or a mean thing to you, like, you know, get over it. But unless you've been in the shoes of someone who's experienced racism on a daily basis and has had that affect them so negatively, and I'm drawing on my own experiences here uh, facing racism growing up in in the education system. Um, you know, I think uh, a white person probably wouldn't understand as much as uh, another racialized person. So, I mean, that's a that's a privilege. And I I'm. I'm glad that there are people who haven't faced these kinds of oppression because it it's awful to experience it. Um, but I think it's incumbent on people who have that privilege to work a little harder in empathizing with, I think it's incumbent upon people with privilege to work a little harder in empathizing with those who have experienced oppression, whether it's in, uh, whether it's racism or you know sexualized violence you know it it may not be a big deal to you but it's a big deal to other people and that should be enough right so i mean um privilege and power dynamics absolutely play a, a big role in how we are able or not able to give or deny consent and that's why you know uh, it's not consent is is uh, a complex topic that isn't just well if the person if you know the person said yes then that's a yes and you're good and if a person said no then that's a no what's so hard to understand about it no it's it's much more complicated than that if uh, a person who <clears throat> if your if your boss tries to uh, 
engage in sexual activity with you in the workplace, you might not feel comfortable enough to say, no, I don't want to, because there's the implied or possibility, there's the possible threat of negative implications to your career. Now, let's, I mean, there are even, there are even layers of privilege within that. There might be, um, you know, a person with, a, with high socioeconomic status who's highly educated and uh, has high socioeconomic mobility that uh, is like, well, I mean, you know, so what if he fires me, like, unjustifiably because I wouldn't sleep with him? Like, I can get another job, right? Where, so, where I'm, my body and my bodily autonomy are respected. But what happens if you're um, a low-wage worker who can't afford to miss a rent payment or a paycheck? What happens if you're, if you have dependents, what, like if you have kids and you're a single parent or, you know, like that, there's so many, there's so many uh, layers to this complexity. And um, it really, I think it really speaks to why consent education and anti-sexualized violence work needs to be intersectional. Um, but yeah, any, any threats, any intimidation, any coercion, or pressure tax uh, tactics, um, abuses of a, a position of trust or power or authority uh, mean that consent has not been freely given. And so there isn't consent. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about um, coercion and being forced to do things and how consent is so important, but like, how do we really normalize constant constant conversation instead of assuming someone has given their consent you know like we talked about earlier holding hands I mean consent I mean then yeah does not doesn't mean consent going back to someone's place mean consent um dancing with someone doesn't mean consent making out with someone doesn't mean consent and I know coercion plays a, a really big factor in this because when we say no um there are a lot of people who start to guilt trick them it's like oh but I know personally with me with my own personal experiences when I've with um, a situation that happened like about four years ago maybe I, I did say no and you know I they were trying to come up with a lot of like guilt trick comments for um, and an example of this would be like oh like you know if you say yes we'll start dating or if you say yes I promise like I'll leave you alone after I won't tell anyone that we were ever talking or if you say yes you know um, I promise you our sexual activity was be so good um and when you do say no again then they start to guilt trick you again it's like oh hey fine don't say yes you know i'll just go find someone else or okay don't say yes you know respect your choices and stuff but it, there's like a little bit of manipulation kind of tied into this conversation um and yeah like and a lot of people don't realize that consent is ongoing you know it's like if someone said yes once doesn't mean that's a yes forever and if someone changes their mind that you can change their mind again and you know this can be frustrating for a lot of people because it's like go oh, just make up your mind you know why don't you have a straight answer if, a sweet, if you said yes once to us making out why can't you say yes again or if you said yes once why isn't it assumed that you know all our sexual activities from here on forth is going to be consensual but it doesn't work that way it's really frustrating that a lot of people have this mindset. So how do we normalize consent conversations instead of just assuming someone has given their consent? And what are some ways we can even ask for consent? 
I think this is a really important question and you, uh, you gave really uh, good examples of, of pressure and uh, like coercion because, um, sorry, before I forget, let me, let me answer uh, the question. Uh, we normalize conversations about consent by making consent not just about sexual activity. If, cons you know, in the, um, I mentioned that the consent education workshops that I first started teaching uh, at Kaplan University were taken from the, were based on the model of the, uh, of the anti-violence project, which is uh, a great um, organization in Victoria out of uh, the University of Victoria Student Society. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole goal of those workshops is to, is to tear down rape culture because that is where the motives and permissions for sexualized violence come from. But if you tear down rape culture, you can't just leave that space empty. You have to put something there in its place. And so when we talk about building a culture of consent, that doesn't just mean, you know, if you're gonna have sex with someone, um, you've got to have a two minute conversation about this, this and this, right? Building a cu culture of consent means, um, you know, asking people for consent in daily activities like, hey, can I ask you about your tattoos? Some people have tattoos that are really personal to them and they might not want to talk to them. Is it, is it you know, always necessary um, to ask somebody something like that. I think whenever I think about something like that, I try to think of like, what, what are things that I can do to make people fe feel comfortable and respect people's boundaries, right? So um, asking people if you can give them some feedback or, and also, asserting your own boundaries in non-sexual contexts, being like, contexts saying like, maybe maybe uh, I text a friend uh, really late at night and they're just like, you know what? Uh, I like talking to you, but uh, if you could please not text me past 11 p.m. because uh, even though you know, I won't answer it right away. Like I still hear the dings and um, it makes it harder for me to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, like like stuff like that. I think we normalize conversations about consent and build a culture of consent by integrating consent and make like into our everyday lives and making it more explicit. Um, you know, the the pressure tactics that you mentioned are something that I think everybody understands is wrong and are pressure tactics. But when we think about coercing someone or forcing someone to do something, it's so much more like physically violent. Like if, you, if I said, oh, this person forced someone to do something against their will, you know, the first thing that I, th I think of is 
um, somebody physically like, you know, pointing a gun at somebody or um, wrestling somebody to the ground or, or something like that. When in reality, you know, the, the majority of the time coercing someone is, I mean, coercing is just compelling somebody to do something against their will. And that happens through, like you said, guilt, through manipulation, through, um, you know, like lying and gaslighting and um, just pressure in general. If somebody says no and you keep trying to justify something like, oh, you know, but it'll be so good or, uh, but I won't tell anybody, you're not taking that person's no and accepting it. You're trying to change their mind. And that's not respecting somebody's bodily autonomy. That's not, uh, that's not respecting somebody's consent. Um, so yeah, I think the, when, when we were teaching uh, the workshops and I, I should, uh, I should note, and I should have noted this right off the bat, but um, sorry, I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, when we were teaching the workshops at CAPU, one of the examples of uh, a pressure tactic was, um, oh, come on, babe, it's my birthday, right? Like that was something that, that was a, a, an example that we used in the workshop. Um, as, and it's a, it's a really uh, good and unfortunately relatable example of how pressure is not um, necessarily just like, uh, you know, like like a physical threat of violence or a um, official hierarchical structure in which you can't, like, it's not just, you know, between you and your boss or between like a police officer or uh, somebody who has, you know, like a job in government, like something official, like some official power structure, pressure, comes from not taking uh, somebody's, not respecting somebody's wishes and, you know. No, you're absolutely right. Um, the example you used about, well, oh, hey, it's my, it's my birthday, we should be doing something. That's, I feel like that's really, really common um, in a lot of like, you know, relationships, whether it's romantic or, or just platonic or just like, you know, like a, like hookup culture nowadays, which is very, um, it's very common now. So just, you know, bringing it back to normalizing conversation about consent, I do personally feel like a lot of people would argue, actually, I should start off by saying a lot of people would argue that it should start off in our households, but, you know, a lot of our parents and a lot of our elders are not really aware of what consent is, right? They grew up in a very, very different time period um, where, a lot of the women were just like basically housewives, you know, they were taking care of people, taking care of people before taking care of themselves. And one of the things I would say that consent was, you know, not on that list of things that was around at the time. And I feel like it's, it is our job when we learn these things from like peers or on the internet, or when we get older and experience our own um, experiences with sexual violence and we start to, you know, have movements like the Me Too movement um into play and you know there's a more advocates and activists who and scholars 
and you know community people who are doing this kind of work i feel like we should be bringing back our knowledge into our hospital as well and educating um, our family on it um i feel like yes we should be doing that however education doesn't always start at home it does start in school and we should start normalizing that in our public school system you know whether it's elementary or secondary schools um and it sucks that when you get into post-secondary post-secondary school, you know, like university and colleges is when conversations start to get normalized more. But sexual violence doesn't just happen when you're 18 years old, right? It happens way before that. Um, and our school system does need to do a better job. Our leaders and politicians and whether it's in BC or Alberta or even just like across the country, we should be doing a more better job at normalizing these kind of conversations. So even with, you know, the workshops that were happening at your university, I'm glad that at that time it was um going around but with a lot of other universities and colleges um especially colleges i should say that there's hardly a lot of like there's no a lot of reporting like a report system i know with ubc they have ams a center where you go and report and there's usually like a support worker who helps you out right um but with a lot of other colleges because it's smaller i feel like it's kind of obvious that people think these kind of things don't happen on college grounds, but it does. And I wish that there was more like support centers and the sexual assault center specifically to say that uh, we were able to report these things instead of having to, an escort and company us to like Vancouver Hospital or Sir Memorial Hospital where there's a team. We have safe walk guards, like security campuses who accompany us to like the closest hospital. So Vancouver Hospital, um, our Surrey Memorial, whether it's a team of like forensic nurses or even like, you know, like a close by women's organization that kind of takes in the reporting and deals with it. But there's not one specifically at college campuses that kind of deal with it. So that, in my personal opinion, kind of sucks because I feel like these things do exist and this continue to exist. And it's not really a way to combat that. Yeah, I mean, you're you're so right. I think what when I said uh when I first started saying, you know, uh, I started teaching these consent education workshops at CAPU um, because the the CSU and CAPU teamed up to prevent sexualized violence on campus, I immediately had the urge to say, I mean, it's not like our campus is just so bad that we had to bring in the specialty, you know, it's like it's uh, actually the uh, provincial government brought in the Sexualized Violence Policy Act in 2016 uh, that was the results of uh, a campaign by advocates and activists in the sexualized violence and gender-based violence space for years that mandated that all post-secondary institutions had to have a standalone separate policy on sexualized violence uh, because they're, they're, they didn't have to before and um, some did and some didn't. And um, so, you know, there's this, we know, we, I think people think that, oh, the bigger the campus, if there's a big campus, uh, sexualized violence happens there. But if there's a smaller campus, it might not happen there. And that's absolutely not true. Um, sexualized violence happens everywhere. It happens on uh, college campuses, university campuses, institute campuses, no matter how big, no matter how small. And um, at, you know, the uh, center you mentioned, the uh, UBC Alma Mater Society's 
uh, SASC Sexual Assault Support Center uh, is great. I uh, I know I've met a couple of people who work there. I've I've heard about their work, um, but that's there because the alma mater society has uh, a lot of members and therefore a lot of funding to introduce something like that. Whereas smaller student unions and smaller uh, post-secondary institutions may not have, I mean, UBC, like the AMS, the students union, uh, the alma mater society is the undergraduate students union, the has SASC, Sexual Assault Support Center, and the, the school, UBC, also has the Sexualized Violence Reporting Office. Um, but smaller, smaller institutions and student unions don't have enough money to have these separate standalone services. So, I mean, that's something that uh, in my uh, advocacy at the provincial level, uh, we've I, I've talked about to to uh, government officials is that look, this is something that is a uh, a patchwork framework that is that uh, unfortunately is not adequately funded across the province, and it really is just you know if you have the money to establish this kind of programming, this kind of uh, reporting structure, this kind of support, uh, these kind of support frameworks, then that's, that's great. But if you don't, you're left, uh, you're left to, uh, you know, either turn students away, or um, I mean, it, it depends on what your post-secondary institution has. I, I, I think Capilano University is very lucky that the Capilano Students Union um, is uh, is so committed to this, and Capilano University has shown real commitment to this by establishing, um, you know, well-being overall well-being programming, but it also um, a focus on fighting sexualized violence on campus, and not just doing that by introducing uh, a hierarchy of draconian rules, but coming to it from a, a holistic perspective and, and uh, you know, investing in consent education programming, which uh, the, the Capilano Students Union brought to campus and the, and the university partnered with them on. Um, but yeah, if you're going to uh, a small college especially if it's, you know, if it's in the interior or, or on the island and it doesn't have uh, the same type of funding that a, a UBC or an SFU or a UVic might have, um, I don't know exactly what uh, survivors' experiences are like there, but I know across the board that overall society-wide sexualized violence is rampant. It is, um, it is swept under the rug. The people who do the work on the front lines are doing this sometimes off the side of their desk and 
are a lot of times survivors themselves and they don't have adequate funding to um, to help survivors and help prevent more people from becoming survivors. So um, I think the, I think live, um, the more we listen to advocates and activists who have been working uh, in this space, the more we can learn about the root causes of sexualized violence, the actual problems on the ground in these, uh, in sexualized violence prevention and response spaces and how we can move forward in uh, a way that does not perpetuate harm or further traumatize people who have experienced oppression. Um, you know, sexualized violence prevention and consent education, it needs to be, uh, it needs to be decolonial, it needs to be trauma-informed, and it needs to be survivor-centric. So um, that is, I mean, I'll just, uh, I don't know if, if you have another question, but if not, I'll, I'll just end on uh, a personal note. The reason that I'm here and the reason that I know all that I do about this stuff is because, <clears throat> and I should have mentioned this, uh, you know, at the beginning of the the podcast, um, because this is extremely important, but uh, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be advocating for this kind of stuff if not for the absolutely amazing women and queer folks that have mentored me, that have uh, taught me, that have um, introduced these concepts to me, talked with me about them, um, supported me, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of got into, I mentioned at the, the beginning of this podcast that I, one of the reasons that I volunteered to start doing consent education work was to show, was to show guys that, you know, this isn't just a women's issue. This isn't just the, an issue for, um, people who have been sexually assaulted or, um, you know, are queer. This is something that is, that is and should be everybody's issue, but I would not be here at all without the mentorship of uh, incredible women and, and queer folks. And, um, you know, the more that I talk to uh, survivors, the more that I talk to advocates and well, sorry, the more that I listen to survivors, the more that I listen to advocates, to indigenous people, to racialized uh, people, to uh, people with disabilities, disabled people, um, the more I understand, the more uh, layers I, I understand and definitely people in your life. So if you ever wanna talk about sexualized violence, uh, please ask people, that's a, that's a huge part of consent and consent education is that uh, somebody that you know, somebody in the room is, is a survivor, whether you know it or not. And if you wanna to talk to somebody about 
sexualized violence, ask them first and be okay and accept it and don't question it when somebody says no, because you never know what somebody has been through. And, you know, further traumatizing them or re-traumatizing them is not a good way it's it's not a good way to treat someone and um you know if if you ask somebody uh can i ask you something about sexualized violence and they say no um you know what you've that's like that's great you've just learned something about consent and you've just learned uh you know, that's experiential learning. You just learned something really important about consent. When it comes to consent, there are, there's a lot to learn. Nobody can really say like, hey, I know everything there is to learn. And um, if you want to start learning about consent, uh, there's a lot of, there's a, there are a, a lot of great resources online. Um, I'd encourage you to talk to people about it in person, but I also do really want to stress that um, this is an intensely personal and real subject for for far too many people. Yeah, and just to expand on that, just because someone says no, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily um, been impacted by sexual violence. It could just mean that, you know, they may not be educated on it. They're not, um, they may not necessarily have experiences. Um, they just might not be educated on it. It's based feel very uncomfortable, but um, at that also on top of that, and uncomfortable, having uncomfortable conversations, um, you kind of sort of have to have in order to normalize like conversations of sexual violence. But um, on that note, thank you so much, Hassan, for being here today. You really dived into a lot of important concepts and conversations and important knowledge that we as a community need to have. So I really want to express my highest gratitude to you for being here on a guest and hopefully we will meet again. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for starting this podcast. I think uh, it's going to benefit a lot of people, uh, survivors and non-survivors alike. So thank you, Shivani. Thank you.